great men and women, it's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. So hello everyone and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Zach DiBacco, and today we are going to look into a tiny part of the Jefferson administration that was mentioned in the Jefferson episode, the case of the Midnight Judges. Really, we are looking at a Supreme Court case, Marbury v. Madison, but that isn't nearly as fun to say. But this case is one of the most important cases in SCOTUS history. Without it, no one would really care what the Supreme Court had to say at all. We wouldn't be overly concerned with the court appointments the character of justices, or the decisions they make regarding things like segregation, abortion, or the 2000 presidential election. We will get to all of those somewhere down the road. As for today, we're actually talking about some presidential shenanigans 200 years prior to the mess that was Bush v. Gore. So, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me, it's the history of the great minds that made history come to be, The Chaser. Now, I hope everyone remembers where this fits in the Jefferson episode when I said, quote, after dealing with that mess and a little issue in the Supreme Court. Well, it's that little issue in the Supreme Court that we're talking about today. But what are the Midnight Judges other than the most badass nickname for a group of judges ever? Well, it's the name given to those last-minute appointees of the Adams administration just as he was on his way out of the White House in a bittersweet attempt to maintain some semblance of federal power within the limits of Washington, D.C. But before we jump into our story for today, let's talk about today's drink. Of course, this is still the Jefferson Saga, so I am drinking wine. It probably should be a nice Portuguese Madeira wine that Jefferson favored, but I decided to go with my favorite Portuguese wine, Vinha Verde. This delicious white wine with a little sparkle to it is from the northernmost region of Portugal called Minot. Translating literally to green wine, it isn't green, nor is it from a specific grape. It's a way of making wine. But it is definitely worth a try, and my favorite brand is Seastone. But more on that later. So what's going on in 1800? What is such an issue that the Supreme Court had to get involved? I mean, we have highlighted that it was a pretty smooth transition of power between Adams and Jefferson. There was no civil war, no breakdown of government, but it certainly wasn't perfect. Now, it has occurred to me that some of my listeners may be in need of a very brief American government lesson. So with that, let's make sure everyone knows the basics. I kind of have a habit of assuming that most of my listeners know this, but we haven't covered the Constitution on DGMH yet, and you would be surprised how many people, sadly Americans, don't know this stuff, or at least aren't sure about it. For today, let's look at the first three articles of the U.S. Constitution. Our story for today really does involve all three branches of government, yes there are three, as it is all about authority, who has it, the constitutionality of laws, and the powers of the court. So we have to understand who makes the laws, who enforces the laws, and who interprets the laws. And I'm going to move very quickly through this. Article 1 of the Constitution of the United States created what is called a bicameral or two-house legislature. 
legislature, whose duty and purpose was to make laws and represent as close as possible the interest of the people. Of course, here I am talking about the House of Representatives, who we saw in the Jefferson episode breaks ties pretty poorly in presidential elections, and of course, there's the Senate. Article 1 is by far the largest and most detailed article of the Constitution, providing Americans with the greatest details about how their government will work, as it enumerates the many powers that belong to the state and federal governments, as well as what the individual houses of Congress have the power to do. For example, tax laws have to originate in the House of Representatives. Representatives have what is called power of the purse. And the Senate ratifies treaties and declares war. But in listing out the powers granted to the legislative branch of the United States government, it also confines them limiting the powers they have. Regardless, for this story, you really just need to know one thing. The legislative branch makes the laws. And in 1801, as John Adams prepared to depart the White House, the lame duck Congress was packed full of Federalists who weren't looking forward to losing power to Jefferson and the Southern motherfucking Democratic Republicans. But let's quickly jump to Article 2, which created the executive branch of the United States. This one has far less detail, which really opens the door for some loose interpretation. As a result, the powers belonging to the president are constantly being defined, tested, and redefined from president to president. Pretty much all it says is that the president will be commander-in-chief as well as head of state. POTUS can make treaties but requires Senate approval for ratification. Other issues like term length, electoral process, and who can run for office, blah blah blah, are all there too. But really for today, we are concerned with one singular statement of Article 2, Section 2, quote, He, yes it says he, shall have the power to appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, etc. And that is what we need to know. The president appoints judges, court officials, and Supreme Court justices. Moving on. Article 3 is really important for today, so I could pull out some quotes from the Constitution, but I don't really want to, and don't worry, it's short as shit. You can go read it yourself. Basically, it creates the idea of a Supreme Court, whose members will serve for life just in case the people, the law, and the president for some reason aren't getting along or meshing. But the powers granted to the court are extremely vague. This is the shortest of the first three articles of the Constitution that come together to create the three branches of U.S. government. But as we have seen, sometimes less is more. Jumping to 1789, Congress actually had to, quote, establish the judicial courts of the United States, as the act was called. This act is more commonly known as the Judiciary Act of 1789. With it, they created a six-member court that pretty much did nothing for the first decade of their existence. I mean, they had no power. SCOTUS made one real decision of any importance in the case Chisholm v. Georgia, but that was overruled with the creation and ratification of the 11th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, the justices really had to feel useless, but the court's time to shine was coming. So that is it. In case you weren't paying attention in government class, there are three branches, checks and balances, separations of power, blah 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 blah. Basically, most of what Hamilton and Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers was implemented into the Constitution of the United States. The three branches have separate, unique powers so that they might check the power of other branches should they get a little crazy. It's worked so far. 
As we already discussed, Thomas Jefferson defeated Adams and actually Burr in the election of 1800. But the election was in November. He wouldn't take power until March, which, yes, is different than today. In the meantime, Congress passed a new law, the Judiciary Act of 1801, which allowed the Federalist Party to revise the country's court system and pack it full of Federalist judges, as they were about to lose all power they had in the other two branches of government to Jefferson's party. With this childish political maneuver, the Federalist hoped to secure some power in this new government, appointing more than 50 new court positions to Federalist appointees, all confirmed by the Federalist-dominated Senate. All that had to be done was for the Secretary of State, John Marshall, to literally deliver the commissions. And that is a name you are going to want to remember, John Marshall. Interesting side note, John Marshall was John Adams' Secretary of State, but he was also appointed by Adams to serve as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And he actually held both positions simultaneously for a brief period. This period. Jumping to 50% of the case title, one of those men named to a judgeship was William Marbury, who was said to be a new justice of the peace in D.C. And I actually kind of feel bad for this guy. I mean, he had to be pretty excited. All bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, he was no doubt eager to start his new post of some prominence, what could have been the start of a new political career for him. But things didn't really work out, as he was never given his commission, at least not in time. But his name is etched into the history of the United States, so that's something. Moving to the other half of the case, James Madison, now serving as Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State. It was up to him to deliver Marbury's commission, and he outright refused. So Willie Marbury is trying to get his commission to start his new job, but the new government won't give it to him. It's like a sick game of Marbury in the middle, Jefferson and Madison being the bullies in Marbury's story. Actually, Marbury wasn't the only one to be denied, but like two of the five authors of the Declaration of Independence, no one seems to care that much. Marbury aimed to counter Madison and get his commission by going to the Supreme Court, asking them to issue what's called a writ of mandamus, which sounds a little like something out of Harry Potter. But it actually is a mandate or order from the court, ordering another branch of government to carry out some sort of action. So what the hell did Chief Justice John Marshall decide? Marshall had to be careful here. It was clear that if he ordered Madison to deliver the commission, that the court would just be ignored, making them look very inferior. Considering Madison didn't even show up to the damn trial, this was the likely outcome if he made the order. So there were three basic questions that the Marshall court had to answer. Does Marbury legally deserve to receive his commission? Does the court have the power to hear this case in the first place? And can the court force Madison to deliver the commission? So what the hell did they decide? First, Marshall and the court decided that it was certainly illegal for Madison to deny Marbury his commission. So that's it, right? Marbury got his job and lived happily ever after. Hell no, this is history, and history isn't a fairy tale. Now, John Marshall will certainly be a great for another day, and I hold him in very high regard as one of the few Americans of the period to consistently rise above politicking. But in Marbury v. Madison, he really knew what he was doing and mastered the political game. Knowing by example that Jefferson and Madison would just refuse to enforce his decision if they didn't agree with it, he instead did not issue the writ of Mendamus. Marshall made a bit of a smart, albeit shady, move here that would forever redefine the power of the Supreme Court 
court. Jumping back for a second to the Judiciary Act of 1789, he actually ruled that the powers it gave to him and the Supreme Court went against Article 3 of the Constitution, as it extended the original intended jurisdiction of the federal court. In doing this, he denied his own seat of government the power to issue the writ of mandamus in this type of case. But he gave the court something so much better. Finally, getting to the overall significance of this case, Marshall's decision in Marbury versus Madison ruled a law passed by Congress and signed by the president, in this case, George Washington, in violation of the Constitution. This rendered it null and void, but it also established a precedent that the Supreme Court had the power to rule on the constitutionality of law, and in doing so could essentially strike down any law or presidential order that worked in contrast to the U.S. Constitution. This is like that moment in Spider-Man where dorky Peter Parker becomes a total badass. Overnight, the Supreme Court went from being the most useless branch of government to being fucking Batman, if Batman's sole purpose in his life was to fight crimes against the Constitution. Well, Batman may have been a bad example here, as he doesn't really have superpowers, but I digress. So what is this superpower called? It's called Judicial Review. A simple definition, Judicial Review is the power of the Supreme Court to rule any law ruling or order in violation of the Constitution. Save a revised law or amending the Constitution itself, you can't really beat judicial review. Its only weakness, as proven in cases like Brown v. Board, but we'll get to that another day, is itself. And we will encounter judicial review countless times in the future. Marbury continued to live as a successful Maryland banker, but he would never hold a judicial office. It is rumored that as a result of this court decision, he developed a bit of a drinking problem. I'm kidding, he didn't, at least not that I could find but I did need some sort of way to transition into the scale of greatness. So like I said today, I'm drinking my favorite wine, Seastone's Vigne Verge. In terms of taste, well, this is my absolute favorite wine out there. I love every bottle I have, and Seastone is my favorite brand so far. It is one of the most refreshing wines in the Florida summer, but really is perfect for every season. With a nice apple taste to it, it gets six points for taste. This is probably my 10th bottle of Seastone Vigne Verge in the past 12 months. I always return to it over every other brand of this variety, and I turn to Vigne Verge over every other variety of white wine. Honestly, it is also my favorite wine to share with and introduce to my friends. It can be a little hard to find, but there are other brands out there, and Seastone is always at Total Wine. Five points for returnability. But oh my god, the price. This bottle of wine comes in at only $7.99. And don't be fooled by the twist top bottle, it is fucking amazing. You cannot beat that price. Six points for price. Well, I'm not surprised that my favorite wine is leaving the show with one of the highest ratings so far. 17 out of 18 points and 6 crowns. Be sure to get a bottle for yourself and let me know if you like it. Well, that brings this episode of The Chaser to a close. Be sure to follow DGMH on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and if you like the show, be sure to leave it a great, hopefully 5-star review on Apple Podcast. I will say it is ironic that Marbury vs. Madison is one of the few times that Jefferson stuck to his principles over the success 
less of his job and his nation. I mean, Jefferson was more than willing to outright ignore a law passed by Congress, likely ignore the court if they had made a ruling, and really ignore his job to enforce the law. As always, Jefferson doesn't disappoint, ever the contradiction. But this moment in early U.S. history has been the force behind constitutional law for more than 200 years. As we will eventually see, court decisions have been horrible and heroic, sometimes failing the American people, others finally bringing about justice, freedom, and even equality. And at the heart of most every Supreme Court decision is judicial review. Cheers! Thank you.